John Nicholas Cassavetes was born on December 9, 1929, in New York, to Greek immigrants Nicholas and Catherine Cassavetes. He had an older brother, Nicholas John. The Great Depression hit shortly after John's birth, so the Cassavetes moved back to Greece, where they lived for six years. John didn't speak any English when he arrived back in America at eight years old. It was even harder for him to fit in because the Cassavetes moved around often as John's father had a hard time keeping work. But John and Nicholas's parents tried to keep things positive despite their financial struggles, and John started gravitating towards the world of film. James Cagney was his favorite actor as a child. John later said, he was the guy most responsible, I suppose, for getting me into films. He was almost like a savior to all the short guys in the world, of whom I am one. He would go to the theater often and watch films like Angels with Dirty Faces. John also started exploring filmmaking, creating short movies with his brother and friends at Coney Island. John was an exuberant personality and loved to entertain, but wasn't very interested in his schoolwork. He later said, When I was 14 years old, I think I was about 5 feet tall, which meant that I had enormous problems getting dates with girls. So you have to compensate for it. You become funnier, more outgoing. Being short is a great character builder. At one point, he chipped his front tooth, though the reason for it always changed throughout the years. That resulted in his signature grin, as he rarely smiled with his mouth open, even after he got his teeth fixed. After his brother Nicholas went to college, John decided to do the same, even though he had no plans for his future. He went to Champlain College, a former army base that was turned into a school. One of John's classmates said that he was a wild guy. He wasn't a great student, but he wasn't stupid. But I would say he took school very lightly. He was there to have fun. John joined the basketball team and often bragged about the conquests he had made with women to his dormitory friends. He got kicked out of Champlain after only a semester and dreamed of becoming an actor. He mainly wanted to escape the conformity of entering into a business life. I didn't want to have anything to do with that world. He worked several small jobs throughout 1949 to come up with his tuition for the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, or AADA. The curriculum focused on acting, voice work, dance classes, and dramatic studies. John was asked to change his name as it was considered too long and hard to spell, but he refused. John became friends with fellow Greek actor Harry Master George as well as Fred Draper and Anne Bancroft, who was still going by her birth name, Anne Italiano. Master George said John was an outgoing, fun, crazy, kind of wonderful guy. He was just nutty. He also said that John was a studious actor and seemed to take his work seriously. John even auditioned for the actor studio three times, but became scornful of the school when he was not accepted. He met fellow AADA student Jenna Rollins. He knew she was the one for him, but Jenna had other thoughts. She later said, I was a woman with a plan. The only thing that could really stop me from succeeding was to fall in love. In those days, if you got married, you had children and quit what you were doing. I wanted to be an actress bad enough that I would forgo the comfort of love. But John's constant needling finally convinced her, and they married on April 9, 1954. John graduated from AADA and started searching for work. Things were opening up for aspiring actors, as it was now the early 1950s, and television was becoming a lucrative opportunity. Once, he was so desperate for a part that he chained himself to a radiator, which earned him a walk-on role in You Are There. 
He found some work as a stock player in theater in Connecticut and Rhode Island, and got bit parts on programs like the Craft Hour and the Lux Video Theater. He later said, Film was unknown to us because we did not expect we could get into it. We hated Hollywood and everything it stood for, mainly because we thought we had no chance of getting there. TV offered an enormous opportunity to express ourselves. John and Harry Master George moved into a small apartment alongside up to 10 other struggling actors. John got small roles in 14 Hours and Taxi in the early 1950s. Around this time, he met photographer Sam Shaw, who told John he would produce a film if John wrote it. He became close with Shaw's family and acted as an older brother figure to Shaw's teenage son, Larry. In early 1954, John booked the role that changed his life on the TV program Omnibus, a live show that offered educational stories in meaty parts. The episode was called Pasa Doble, written by Bud Schulberg, who had also penned A Face in the Crowd and On the Waterfront. The episode was about a bullfighter, played by John, who didn't want to follow in his father's footsteps. His co-star was Kim Stanley, a veteran TV actress who was also popular on Broadway. John was nervous and felt unprepared, but the episode ended up doing extremely well. 20th Century Fox called John's agent and asked if he would play the lead in their film, The Egyptian, to replace Marlon Brando, since he had walked out shortly before filming was set to begin. John did a screen test, but director Michael Curtiz found him unfit and ended up casting Edmund Purdom. The loss of the role did nothing to deter John. In fact, he was more popular than ever before and starred in dozens of television episodes throughout the mid-1950s. Everett Chambers, a casting director at NBC, said that John was a very good actor. He had great intensity inside. There was always a motor going behind his eyes. He made the transition from TV to film with 1955's The Night Holds Terror. It was based on the true story of three men who kidnapped a family and held them for ransom. The film was made with a small budget and nobody in the cast was well known. The movie opened to decent reviews but more positive publicity for John. What a charming family group. I think I'll take this along with me. Show my friends what you all look like. pals at the mafia if anything should happen to us they might like to drop in on you so so you could offer your condolences oh let's go wait a minute you're coming with me why do you want with my husband obviously i'm to be a hostage if anything happens to us he's dead doris his next movie was Crime in the Streets, cashing off of the popularity of the teen pictures like Rebel Without Cause, Blackboard Jungle, and The Wild One. John disliked that he was grouped into the same category as Marlon Brando and James Dean. He said, I'm not a torn sure actor. People have mistaken me for an intense, troubled specimen of modern American youth because during my first two years in television, I invariably had a knife in my hand. The fact is, I'm not a delinquent and I never have been. His next film was Edge of the City, alongside Sidney Poitier. The two hit it off immediately. Director Martin Ritt wanted them to audition by improvising scenes, but Cassavetti's agent, Martin Baum, had the two rehearse them. Ritt was so impressed by what he thought was their natural abilities that he hired them on the spot. So, in my whole life, I loved only one person. My brother Andy. Andy. 
was a kind of a guy, Andy was a kind of a guy that everybody loved. But I was never, you know, jealous of anybody. Because with Andy, Andy, I was different. He treated me special. Like, like sometimes we didn't even have to talk to each other. I mean, we knew what each of us was thinking. Did you ever have that with anyone? Me and Lucy, boy. Yeah. I mean, like, like, I didn't even mind when my mom and my pop favored Andy more than me. I mean, that was to be expected, you know? He was everything I wasn't, you know? Poitier later said John was eccentric in every way, but most especially in the creative area. He came from a real place. He hit fewer false notes than most actors I worked with. That's my greatest compliment. Once released, movie reviewers were quick to draw comparisons between Edge of the City and On the Waterfront, as they were both about men with inner turmoil who worked on a dock. Sunday Review wrote that with John, the image of Brando seems to hover over his every move and gesture and incoherent word. Despite their issues with Cassavetti's performance, the movie was praised for its depictions of race and male friendship. John and Jenna now lived together in a penthouse on Fifth Avenue in New York City as he was making large sums of money from television and films and she was successful on Broadway. John took a trip to Havana to work on his 1956 movie Affair in Havana. He found the script weak and helped make some rewrites. MGM signed him to a three-picture deal, Saddle the Wind, Virgin Island, and Our Virgin Island, in which he reunited with Sidney Poitier. His performance in Saddle the Wind was split 50-50 amongst reviews, one saying he was bursting with ferocity and defiance. This young actor certainly has soared rapidly from his small movie beginnings. But another wrote that Cassavetti seemed very out of place in a western, a Stanislavski-type buckaroo who looked sort of lost in all those wide-open spaces. While working on his movies in the Virgin Islands, John felt he was not able to grow as an actor and wanted to make movies of his own. He later said, I'm a great believer in spontaneity because I think playing is the most destructive thing in the world. He did not feel like he fit into the studio system and was itching to do more. He decided to rent a large studio where he and his actor friends could work on their craft and invite directors, writers, and producers to check out their abilities and possibly hire them. John convinced his friend and actor-slash-writer Burton Lane to teach at the studio, which Lane recalled was an old place, decrepit. We built it into the workshop with a soundproof theater where only people we invited could come. People paid dues. It was really a theatrical environment. It was the Cassavetti's Lane workshop. At tops, we had 20, 40, maybe 60 members. We had beginning, intermediate, and advanced acting classes. John was usually busy working on a film, so Lane was given the brunt of the work. Student Meta Shaw Stevens said that he was an incredible teacher with terrific insight. She remembered when Cassavetes did make an appearance that he would always be full of energy and enjoyed provoking the students to get the best reactions out of them for their scenes. It was during a class that John's first directorial film, Shadows, was born. He enjoyed improvisation and wanted to make a movie about the real human experience with extremely minimal preparation beforehand. He started writing the outline of a story and practiced some ideas with students Lelia Goldoni, Benito Carruthers, and Hugh Hurd. John later explained that he dreamed up some characters that were close to the people in the class, and then I kept changing the situations and ages of the characters until we all began to function as those characters at any given moment. During one class, I was so impressed by a particular improvisation that I said, hey, that would make a terrific movie. 
It was about a black girl who passes for white. She loses her white boyfriend when he meets her black brother. John appeared on Gene Shepard's radio show and talked about his idea for the film. He said that he just needed money to make the dream happen. The next day, over $2,500, which is over $26,000 today, was sent to Cassavetti School to produce the film. Students started building sets in the school spaces, and John began working with his cast to flesh out their characters. He said, I gave them neighborhoods to go to, and then we would shoot in those neighborhoods. They would listen to jazz musicians or go out, have a beer, and try to pick up girls. When we finally started shooting, they had assimilated. They pretty much became the people they had been playing. We wrote life studies for each character, and then we improvised. I'm coming upstairs with you, Lilia, whether you like it or not. Please, don't make any scenes. I'll make the biggest scene you ever saw. You're that important to me. All right, all right. You can come up, for, but just for a minute. Okay, fine. Ain't love grand? Why don't you mind your own business? John convinced some of his friends to donate money to the film, as it was costing more than previously expected. He learned everything there was to know about filmmaking, as the process was completely different than anything he had done before as an actor. Unfortunately, the cast and crew ran across a multitude of issues, such as poor sound and camera work, not keeping track of which take was which and what was the preferred one, a job that would go to a script person, and the fact that Cassavetes had not secured a permit to be filming on the streets of New York. This resulted in John having waiting taxis for the cameramen to jump into while the rest of the cast and crew ran as fast as they could if the police showed up. While the experience was rewarding for John, many of the crew members working on the movie disliked the complete lack of preparation and order. Cinematographer Eric Colmar remembered that it was totally impossible to keep track of anything because we went too fast. The film amounted to a total of a quarter million feet of film that was mostly unusable because of its lack of sound to visual synchronicity. The movie ended up taking two years to edit and the story pieced together with what was available. At one point, John ended up taking some of the unintelligible footage to a school for the deaf so that what the actors were saying could be lip-read and then synced up with the appropriate sound. John hired jazz musician Charles Mingus to write a score for the movie, but most of it ended up being cut. John showed the first cut of the film to audiences at the Paris Theater in New York, where the reactions were mostly negative. He decided to recut and shoot more scenes, but needed more money to do so. He charged the Cassavetes Lane workshop for $30,000 with expenses for equipment, but eventually paid it all off himself. The movie showed in small theaters in 1958 to mostly positive reception, but writer Jonas Makis, who had loved the first print of Shadows, was disappointed by what Cassavetes had done with the final. The difference was immense. With the second version, he moved toward what he would do later, controlling the action. The improvisation was more controlled and contrived, I could not believe he could do this. I realized he did not understand what he had. He never wanted the first version. Cassavetes responded by saying that the original version of Shadows was not accepted by the great majority of thinking people. I think you'll discover when you see the film it is not a commercial film in the usual sense, and I just did not think the first version was very good. While John was struggling with his work on Shadows and repaying debts he owed for production costs, Jenna was pregnant with their first child. She had just finished filming her first movie, The High Cost of Living, with Jose Ferrer. John had been so scatterbrained that he hadn't even noticed that she was pregnant. He started working on a show called Johnny's Staccato about a detective, 
and the Cassavetes, now including their newborn son, Nicholas, moved to Los Angeles. John directed five episodes and found work for all of his friends, including Jenna. The show received low ratings, and only 27 of the originally intended 39 episodes were completed. John's friend Sam Shaw got him an audition for the British film The Webster Boy, while his movie Shadows was picking up interest at film festivals and receiving mass critical and audience attention. John was rewarded with a directing deal with Paramount Studios, while everyone who had worked on the film was left with nothing. Burton Lane said that he never paid anyone for Shadows, and they all sued him. John started working on Too Late Blues, his second film as a director, and the first under a studio, about a jazz musician named Ghost and his relationship with a singer named Jess. He wanted Montgomery Clift and Jenna to play the lead roles, but Paramount said no to both. Clift because of his unreliability as an actor, and Rollins because she was virtually unknown at this point. Instead, they gave the part of Jess to Stella Stevens, who recalled that while under contract with Paramount, she was given the script for the Elvis Presley movie, Girls, 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 which she thought was a piece of shit. Paramount told her she would do the film or be put on suspension. Stevens finally agreed once they told her she could do a dramatic film with Clift, but he was replaced by Bobby Darren. Cassavetes recruited several of his friends to star in and work on the film with him and was given a budget of $350,000 and six weeks to shoot the picture. He and Richard Carr had written the script over the course of a weekend, but Paramount would not let them make any edits to it after the first draft was completed, which disappointed John. He later said, I didn't know anything about directing at a major studio, so Too Late Blues never had a chance. I should have made the film my own way. In New York instead of California, and not on an impossibly tight schedule, working with people who didn't like me, didn't trust me, and didn't care about the film. I had to follow the shooting schedule, so the film you saw is incomplete and a wreck. What kind of a place is this? You know, a regular neighborhood bar. Where, um, working people come after hours, kill some time. A lot of lonely people in the world, you know. You want something to eat? No, thanks. I, I don't feel like eating anything. Kitchen's clean. Can eat off the floor. I'm not very hungry. Hey, I love that dress. It's just cheap. Well, maybe it's cheap, but you make it look good. I know. You know, huh? You really are a princess. My name's Polanski. That's my name, Jessica Polanski. And don't start telling me how much you can do for me or for my career, because there isn't any career. And you can't do a thing for me, understand? In 1961, Cassavetes was signed to a seven-picture deal with Paramount, with a requirement of two movies per year. They had already started planning his next film before shooting for Too Late Blues had even wrapped. It was called The Iron Man, which reteamed him with Sidney Poitier in a World War II drama. Burt Lancaster was also in the film, and the two hit it off right away. Director and producer Stanley Kramer asked John to drop the Iron Man to direct A Child is Waiting, which Kramer was slated to direct but had other projects he was busy on. Kramer would still be producing and said he would be giving John all the freedom he wants. Burt Lancaster and Judy Garland were cast as Dr. Matthew Clark and teacher Gene Hansen, respectively. The film focused on a school for children with mental disabilities, and particularly Reuben, a 12-year-old who was abandoned by his parents, one of whom played by Jenna Rollins. You know, Miss Hanson, I've often thought that 
if I had to have a retarded child, I'd rather have one that was severely retarded than a boy like Ruben. It's the boys like Ruben, the borderline cases, the ones who look like all other boys that are the worst problem. Because they're even more aware that they're being rejected. His parents didn't face the fact that he was retarded until very, very late. They let him play with ordinary children. They sent him to kindergarten. If you can imagine what kind of an experience it must have been for a boy like Ruben to go to kindergarten. Then they decided the thing to do was to, to hide him, to hide him from everything, to protect him, protect him from the world, protect him from himself. Now the continuation of that kind of relationship here now would mean that Ruben would be right back. Oh, sorry, I didn't know you were busy. That's all right, Miss Fogarty, what is it? We've been having some trouble with Reuben. What is it? He broke his phonograph and some of his toys. He broke some of the other boys' toys, too. He didn't eat anything today. He doesn't want to talk to anyone. Is he out there now? Yes. Bring him in. He's acting that way because I moved from the cottage. I know why he's acting that way. Please. Miss Hanson, please leave the room. Filming was difficult as Garland and Cassavetes clashed constantly, and the cast had difficulty working with so many children. Screenwriter Abby Mann didn't like that Cassavetes encouraged the actors to improvise so much off of the script he had written, and Garland and Lancaster didn't like how much Cassavetes poked and prodded at them, telling them to do things that made them uncomfortable. On the last day of shooting, Garland got into her limousine, rolled down the window, and yelled, Fuck you all, before driving off. Problems didn't cease after shooting wrapped as Cassavetes and Kramer were now working on editing the footage and had extremely differing views on what they wanted it to be like. John wanted it to be funny, warm, and sympathetic, but Kramer went behind his back and turned it into more of a love story and showed the children as being troubled. After watching the final cut of the movie, John demanded his name be removed from the credits, but Kramer said no. Rumors spread that John decked Kramer, but people who were there at the screening denied it. Either way, John was kicked out of Hollywood for six years until his Academy Award-nominated role in The Dirty Dozen. Jenna was now the breadwinner of the family, working steadily on television. John took care of Nick, worked on screenplays, and started a home garden. He was approached by Don Siegel, who had directed him in Crime in the Streets, to appear in his TV film The Killers, a remake of the Burt Lancaster, Ava Gardner, noir from 1946. The movie ended up being too violent for TV and was put into theaters by Universal, where it received middling reviews. John and Siegel started working on a remake of Crime Without Passion for Universal, which Cassavetes would write and star in, and Siegel would produce and direct. The film fell through, and John was back to square one. Jenna got a steady gig working on the TV show Peyton Place, based on the 1957 film of the same name, which gave John enough money to start working on his next project, Faces. The movie would be filmed in both his home as well as Gina's mother's. John said, It is a picture about the middle-aged, high-middle-income bracket people that are made fun of in our society. This is the white American society that certain social groups talk about all the time. One day I woke up and realized that I'm part of that society and almost everyone I know is. I knew there was something to be said about these people and about their insular existence and about their place in society that is frowned upon today. 
Cassavetes recruited several of his friends and people he had worked with before in what Seymour Castle referred to as the first communist film shot in America, because everyone was working for free with the promise that they would receive a cut of the profits. The movie was shot mostly at night, and the cast and crew would come over to the Cassavetes for dinner and then to rehearse the scenes they were about to shoot while the crew set up the equipment. One of the three cinematographers, Al Ruben, said that he drive everybody crazy insisting we shoot something again and again. He kept looking for something else to happen in the scene. He always thought the actors would come up with something. There was no bigger thrill for him than having something happen spontaneously in a scene. Darling? Where comes Darling? The girl in his dream. Oh. Well, why did he do it, Darling? Huh? <laughs> you go to town? <laughs> he, kiss, he kisses her. <laughs> you know. One of the takes with actress Lynn Carlin wasn't going the way he wanted it to, John went over to her and slapped her before telling the cameras to roll. Jenna Rollins remembered that Faces was the most trying film she and John worked on together. Things didn't start out well. We had terrible battles. My mistake was in thinking that since the director was also my lover, he would think everything I did was perfect. Once I began to regard John as a director, the problem straightened out right away. But she also said she had difficulty with John pursuing directing rather than acting. She wanted to be an acting team, but said that John looked at acting simply as a way to make money so we could make our films. Their second child, Alexandra, was born on September 21, 1965, so John took roles on TV shows to support his family, as well as the B-movie biker flick Devil's Angels. His reasoning for taking the part was to learn how to ride a motorcycle and get a trip to Mexico. He also started working on editing Faces, which had about 115 hours worth of raw footage. He faced many of the same problems that he had with Shadows, and that there were feet of unusable footage and syncing the sound was incredibly difficult. While working on editing, he was next cast in The Dirty Dozen, a war film featuring the likes of Lee Marvin, Charles Bronson, Donald Sutherland, and Robert Ryan. The movie was filmed in London, but John still made time to make edits on Faces during the nighttime. He earned his only Academy Award nomination for his performance as Victor Franco, a Weasley soldier that was part of the titular Dirty Dozen. What's the matter, number 11? I got a pain. <laughs> Where does it hurt? Well, I'll tell you, it's... Uh... <laughs> I wish you would. Do it correctly, please. Well, I don't have to say, sir. I, uh, to you or anyone else, and I don't have to march either. And I know the rules. Why don't you have to march? <laughs> because condemned men don't have to drill. <laughs> and there's nothing you can do about it, mister. What's your name, son? Eleven. <laughs> His name is Franco, sir. 
John finished working on the cut of faces and showed it to his friend and collaborator, Al Rubin. He thought the final product was terrible and choppy, which turned out to be because John had hired several different editors to work on individual parts without keeping continuity with each other. Rubin reassembled the whole thing, moved in with the Cassavetes, and worked on the movie for a year. In 1967, John started working on a film alongside Stella Stevens called Saul Madrid about an undercover secret agent. He played a mobster whom Madrid was after. Unfortunately, he came down with a bad case of hepatitis and had to quit the film. Production was closed down for three weeks to make sure nobody else was infected, and John was replaced with Rip Torn. Against doctor's orders, John continued to drink as heavily as he always had, which only continued to damage his liver, which had already been affected by the hepatitis. Friends later commented that they never thought John was an alcoholic, but also that he was never without a drink in his hand. After recovering, John left to start filming Rosemary's Baby, after director Roman Polanski's first choice, Robert Redford, was unavailable. He played Guy, the husband of Mia Farrow's Rosemary, who is impregnated by Satan. John and Polanski found out that they were polar opposites, John preferring to get things done in one take as well as improvising, and Polanski preferring planning and as many takes as needed to get exactly what he wanted. The two got into heated arguments often, and Polanski often dissed John's acting and directing abilities to the press. Mia Farrow said she felt embarrassed and upset when the two men openly disagreed and grew apart. His, his father was a martyr to it. you know how he died? Honey, it's 1966. This was published in 1933. There were covens in Europe. That's what they're called, the, um, the, the congregation. Covens in Europe, in America, and in Australia, and they have one right here. That whole bunch, the parties with the singing and the flute and the chanting, those are espas or sabbaths. Or I mean, don't get excited. Huh? Read what they do, Guy. They use blood in their rituals, and the blood that has the most power is baby's blood. And they don't just use the blood, they use the flesh, too. Rosemary, for God's sakes. They're not setting foot in this apartment ever again. And they're not coming within 50 feet of the baby. They're old people. They have a bunch of old friends. Dr. Shan happens to play the recorder. They're not taking any chances with the baby's safety. We're going to sublet and move out. We are not. Oh, yes, we now are. we'll talk about it later. The film was not highly regarded by critics. Penelope Gilead of The New Yorker wrote, Why on earth does a major filmmaker feel seduced by a dumb boo in the night like this story? Other critics wrote that Cassavetes had little flavor and was much too blah a character to have done what this group says he did. But as years passed, the film became a staple in the horror genre and resulted in several other interpretations and spoofs, including a sequel. John and Al Ruban got faces down to a little under four hours and screened it to audiences in Canada. The response was incredibly positive, but John and Rubin felt like the film was still too long. Rubin said, When he was the writer and it was his film, he did the best he could. He was a terrific writer. But when it was going to be shot, then he became the director and got rid of the writer. The director took over. In post-production, then his editing sense took over. So you got three different versions of the picture. He was never satisfied with what the other guy did. He was always looking for something new, something different, that would appeal to him. Important character development and expository scenes were cut out of faces, but John saw this as a good thing. We were able to shorten the film and, at the same time, make the audience do a little work, make the jump, the connection, themselves. We realized we originally had been talking down to the audience. Producer Maurice McEndry was not pleased with how much of the movie had been taken out and ended up exiting the project and Cassavetti's life forever. 
Faces was pared down to a little over two hours long, and John screened it for audiences in Los Angeles. The audience reactions were mostly negative, after Dana Andrews even walked out of the theater. John tried not to let it bother him and took the movie to Europe, where it was nominated for the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival, and lead actor John Marley won Best Actor. Cassavetes submitted Faces to the New York Film Festival, which was the prime place for directors working outside of the mainstream. The film was received warmly. Renata Adler of the New York Times wrote that it was a really important movie about the American class, generation, and marriage abyss. The movie is very blunt and relentless, sometimes redundant, at times nearly unintelligible. But the entire effect is of a high-strung, very bright documentary about the way things are. The only critic who seemed to dislike it, as well as everything else John did, was Pauline Kael. She said the acting was so bad it's embarrassing, and that certain scenes were so dumb, so crudely conceived, and so badly performed that the audience practically burns incense. At one point, when the two of them were riding in a taxi together, John grabbed her shoes off of her feet and threw them out the window. He was well known for challenging any reviewer who disagreed with or disliked his movies, attempting to explain to them why their opinion was wrong. When one person said they were bored watching the characters' boredom and faces, he replied that, They're not bored. They're really living life. If anything, their play is exhausting. It doesn't matter if you're wrong, if you try. John stayed true to his promise and gave everyone who worked on the movie a percentage of the box office profits. He was pleased with how well the movie was doing commercially and the success it was having in the award circuit. John later said that making faces was the very best time of my life because of the people. I never met people like that and I'm talking about every single member of that company and cast, people who made my life really worth living. He set right to work on a new screenplay that would soon become Husbands, about three friends who must grapple with life after one of their friends dies. He based much of it off of his own experience with his brother Nicholas's passing from a heart attack in the late 50s. John said the movie was about three married guys who want something for themselves. They don't know what they want, but they get scared when their best friend dies. It's a story of three guys, they're not fags, who like each other better than they do their wives. John, his Machine Gun McCain co-star Peter Falk, and Ben Gazzara were cast as the main trio. John said, we started with ourselves and a kind of simple idea of a guy dying, what it would mean to us if one of us died. We made a pact that we would try to find whatever truth was left in ourselves and talk about that. Sometimes the scenes would reflect things that we didn't like to find out, how idiotic we were or how little we had to do with ourselves, how uptight we were. We felt that it was important to find a way to have the courage to put that out on a line. The three men became best friends during shooting, and John said they kept doing talk shows and interviews just to be able to spend time and mess around with each other. John said they rehearsed for two weeks where we did nothing but improvisation. When we got the scene absolutely polished, we threw it out and wrote the dialogue on the spot, right there. Then I would say, the camera goes here, and we'd get in front of the camera and do what we had to do. Husbands was going to be paid for by producer Bino Sikogna, whom John had worked with on Machine Gun McCain. But shortly before principal production was set to begin, he told John that the movie would have to be pulled because he could no longer fund it. John agreed that the three leads would take expenses, not salaries, until the picture sold. We'll sell it, and when we do, we'll get a much better payday. Cast and crew members remembered that John, especially when he was drunk, was a pain to work with. Peter Falk in particular struggled with John's directing style and remembered that he'd run in front of the camera, put a banana up your behind, he'd do anything. Falk added, in some ways, he deliberately tried to keep you off balance so you wouldn't bring out old-fashioned technique and old ideas, but it was impossible. I didn't understand him. 
John's point of view was that sooner or later, Peter would know what he was doing, and sooner or later, Ben would know what he was doing, and we'd wait it out until we did know what we were doing. I looked into your eyes, I saw it right away. Leo. Well, you must be, um, you must be a Sagittarian. Don't you? Give me a cigarette, Pat, please. It's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. But you're very short. I'm a Sagittarian, and I'm short. Short Sagittarian. You have such observation powers, I can't believe it. But I have a lot of charm, don't I? Because I'm quite tall. Yes, I, uh, I believe that. But you're also very intelligent. And you're, uh, you have a biting tongue. And you're, uh, you, uh, you, uh, you, uh, <laughs> I don't know what you do. Let's see. You're, um, gosh, I don't know anything about you. You're, uh, um, you're, uh, let me, just give me an hour. And I'll think of it. You're, you're, um, do you like, uh, art, theater, music, language, religion, politics? No, no, I don't like politics. What languages do you speak? No, none. None? English, I'm afraid. You understand French? No. I'm going to give you a little bit of French. Je ne toi que de toi, je ne gêne pas toi. Je ne toi comment je l'ai touché les faux. Je. Sounds awful. What is it? It was so dirty, I can't tell you. Bino Sikogna had run out of money to offer the picture, and John invited representatives from MGM, Columbia, and Paramount to watch the shooting of a scene and see if they would buy it. They ended up starting a bidding war with Columbia coming out on top. John returned home to L.A. in the summer of 1969 and began working on the 280 hours of footage he had amassed over the course of six months of shooting. A four-hour cut was screened at Universal and loved by those who saw it because it was light and funny, but John hated it and shaped it into a serious movie. Sam Shaw's daughter Edie said that her father preferred the rough cut of the movie because it was more important that you could laugh. I think the laughs made John nervous. When I saw the final cut, it was not as good a movie. John ended up creating several different versions, all of which varied greatly. There were three that focused on each of the lead characters more than the others. Ben Gazzara was worried that John was going to ruin the film if he kept obsessively re-editing it, and the two had a heated fight. John decided to write a novel version of the film to help him and his co-editors while piecing together the film, and dove into the backstories of the three men. Peter Falk was upset that John hadn't supplied any of this information to him when they were filming. Why didn't you tell me any of this while we were making the picture? He asked John at one point. A screening of Husbands at the San Francisco Film Festival in 1970 made the audience irate, and they booed when the three stars came on stage to talk about the movie. They thought it didn't offer any sort of commentary on the white, middle-class male. John decided to cut it once more, and Columbia began regretting their decision to release the film, as it had morphed into something much different than what they'd signed on to do. It still ended up getting released, and to a wide array of reactions. Mostly male audiences loved the movie, while a majority of the women did not. Feminist Betty Friedan said that, "'Husband zeroes in on the real state of love and sex in our time,' It shows the actuality of the crisis between men and women in America today. Strangely enough, Husbands, a movie made by men about the men's love for other men, is the strongest statement of the case for women's liberation I have yet seen on stage or screen. 
John couldn't understand the strong dislike from female audiences that the movie received, saying that if anyone should enjoy the film, it should be women. John and Jenna's third child, Zoe, was born on June 29, 1970. John started working on his next movie, what he deemed a rom-com, between Jenna Rollins and his good friend Seymour Castle, which was to be called Minnie and Moskowitz. The movie would be made through Universal, but John hoped they wouldn't interfere with his process, as he had a lifelong hatred of any studio system. He'd been wanting to make a movie about marriage and a 70s response to screwball comedies of the 40s. He said, Women have a tendency when they get married to say, All right, I will now set my life to order. And like any guy, Seymour's instinct is to just go with the marriage thing. If you love a woman, you don't think marriage will change the relationship. The shock is that it does. Roland said that, in this day and age, when people don't marry and don't wish to, it can take its toll on them. The film is about freedoms, freedoms which have a somewhat questionable value attached to them. In part, it's an answer to all those I want my freedom and won't commit myself to anything or anybody pictures, which seem to be the vogue thing these days. We're deeper than that, all of us. The greatest, most important thing is committing yourself to someone. Hello. Hello. Yeah. This is Minnie. Are you hungry? Where are you? I'm uh, in an ice cream parlor. Where the hell are you? Damn it, Minnie, you're going to drive me crazy. Where are you? Look, buddy, don't swear at me. If you want to ask me where I am, if, if, if you want to keep it romantic, otherwise... John and Jenna had their own share of issues during their marriage, and John described his thoughts on their relationship as such. I believe that any two people who disagree should really go as far as they can, and I think we do. Screaming, yelling, petty acts of hostility and cruelty. But it's all meaningless. It's meaningless if that essential love is there, like a rubber band that you stretch out, no matter how far you pull it. And even if it stings, snapping back, it returns. The love reappears. Jenna agreed, saying in 1984 that, John and I probably disagree on just about everything in the world. That's what marriage is all about. If you think a marriage isn't going to be like that, you've got trouble. Minnie and Moskowitz had the unfortunate luck to open around the same time as A Clockwork Orange, and the audiences were small. But Seymour Castle was happy with his performance, saying, If I never made another picture, I'd still be proud of myself as an actor. Cassavetes also became a mentor to Martin Scorsese during the filming of the movie after loving Scorsese's debut, Who's That Knocking at My Door?, and asked Scorsese to be sound editor on Minnie Moskowitz. Peter Falk convinced John to make Mikey and Nicky, a film that director and writer Elaine May had been crafting for a couple of decades. It was an incredibly personal project about people she had known growing up in Philadelphia. The film was about two friends who work for the mob and spend the course of a night together as a hitman comes after one of them. Peter Falk later said, uh, Elaine May had written a script called Mikey and Nicky. Uh, I thought it was a tremendous, tremendous script. And Elaine and I thought that John would be wonderful to play in it. And I made a meeting with John. It was in the Paramount Commissary. And uh, I told him, Elaine wrote the script, and we would like you to be in it, and uh, I'm here to ask you whether you'd be interested in it. He said, I'll do it. I said, John, this is serious business here. She spent a lot of time on this script, and uh, I, I, th th this is very important to me. So I'm asking you whether you'd be interested in it. And he said, I said, I'd do it. No, I said, no, 
Oh, you wanna, why don't you ask some, some questions? Some intelligent questions about the project and about the part. And, uh, it's too quick, I, it, it, I'll do it. Well, he started out rather calmly. But by the time he finished, he was up on top of the table. I can't, I, it's on television, so I can't tell you exactly what he said. You know. No, I can't tell you exactly what he said. But the gist of it was, do you think I'm like you, worried about whether or not it's gonna be a success? Do you think I'm worried that maybe my career will be furthered by this? Do you think, blah, 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 and he got further and further away, and he ended up by saying, are you gonna be in it? Yes. Did she write it? Yes. Is she going to direct it? Yes. What else do I have to know? Gee, I thought, well, boy, this is a hell of a guy. That is one hell of a guy. The movie was filmed in the summer of 1973, but wasn't released until 76. Filming was very intense for everyone involved that wasn't Cassavetes, Falk, or May, because all three of them had very neurotic tendencies when they got into the zone. May got into a battle with Paramount over the rights of the film and spent two years editing it, much to Paramount's dismay. When she was really starting to feel the pressure from the studio to finish the picture, two reels went missing. Apparently, she had gotten her psychoanalyst to take the reels and hide them in a garage in Connecticut. Since the law was unable to go across state lines and seize them, the scenes on the reels ended up being completely cut from the film and the rest of the movie was pieced together without them. Mikey, is that my fault? Don't get mad at me because some dumb hooker turned you down. She's your girl. She's not a hooker. You don't pay for that. Mikey, she's a psycho. You got you to gotta tell her you love her. You give her a few bucks. You tell her it's a present. I thought that's going to make it interesting for you. Bullshit. You know what would happen. Honest to God, Mikey, I, I didn't. I, I wouldn't do anything to hurt you on purpose. I, I wouldn't do anything to make you look bad. You, you're like my family. I love you. Hey, I think you'd make your family look bad on purpose. Because I don't think you love anyone but you. Glad to know what you think of me. Good. Because I'm glad I told you. Now, here's your gun. Give me my watch. Give me my watch. Oh. Give me my watch. I want my watch. Here's your watch. Here's your watch. Is it broken? What? Is it broken? Son of a bitch. My father gave me this watch. Well, give it to me. I'll, I'll see if get I can away, fix it. Get away. John started working on A Woman Under the Influence, which was funded by both him and leading man Peter Falk. Jenna Rollins played Falk's wife, whom he sends to a mental hospital. The Cassavetes were gambling their house in order to fund the picture, so time was of the essence in working on the movie. The cast only had one copy of all of their costumes and did their own hair and makeup. 
John started working with the American Film Institute to get film students to help out. The film was shot chronologically over the course of 13 weeks and proved to be a huge emotional ordeal for everyone involved. John didn't allow the actors to discuss the scene together before they shot it, which made Peter nervous when it came to the scene when Jenna has a breakdown. He said he remembered saying his lines, but I don't remember having the feeling of acting. It was like I was watching somebody in life. I was riveted. Her descent into madness is the most extraordinary 12 minutes of sustained acting I've ever seen on film. Nick, I get, I get the idea there's some kind of a conspiracy going on here. I mean, you've been looking at me so quiet-like, and... Uh... He's got something in that bag. Don't be concerned yeah, about this bag. Yeah, he's going to bag. try to imprison Maybe me with something in that bag. Don't be concerned about this bag. Am don't I be, right? Don't be concerned Am about right, this bag. Am I right, Nick? Am I right, Nick? Am I right, Nick? Mabel, would you please make me a drink? Oh. <laughs> you, you want a drink, Seth? Uh -huh. You want a martini, yeah. Seth? Jeff Lipsky, who worked on the movie, said, It was the first time in the history of motion pictures that an independent film was distributed without the use of a nationwide system of self-distributors. That meant John was in charge of getting the movie to theaters, designing the posters, and promoting it entirely on his own. The movie opened at the New York Film Festival and was liked by most audiences. Jenna Rowland said that they were fully prepared for people to not like it, but they went crazy. That was so unexpected. The movie did so well in New York and Los Angeles that theaters started calling John to screen the movie instead of the other way around. It ended up making about $10 million, over $60.5 million today. John earned a Best Director nomination at the Academy Awards, and Jenna was up for Best Actress. They lost to Francis Ford Coppola for The Godfather Part II, and Ellen Burstyn in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, respectively. Woman Under the Influence was seen as a feminist film that Jenna hoped would bring more female-centric films into the picture. There are vast areas of the female experience that haven't been tapped and which won't be except when women begin to write about them. The receipts from the film indicate a revival of interest in the women's picture, which might create a market. John had plenty to say about what his intent with the message of the movie was, especially in relation to women, but it all boiled down to one thing. For years, I claimed the artist's right not to be headed down by anything or anybody. I made films, got drunk, stayed away from home. I destroyed my wife, yet she stood by me through child after child. So I made woman as a tribute to Jenna for all the lousy things I'd done to her. The Cassavetti's friends always talked about how they felt like John and Jenna were yin and yang, inseparable, artists who needed each other creatively. Rumors often flew that they were getting a divorce, especially after Woman Under the Influence was released, but Jenna always denied it, saying she liked to keep her personal life private. Despite being exhausted after working on Woman for four years, John was itching to start another movie. He came up with The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, starring Ben Gazzara as a man who is offered the chance to kill a bookie as a trade-off for his gambling debts. 
The idea was birthed between John and Martin Scorsese, who had wanted to make a gangster film with John after he'd helped him with editing portions of Mean Streets. Bo Harwood, who composed the score and worked on sound, said, It felt like we were living on the street for months. There was still that string of love and camaraderie that John carried with him, inherent in all the characters. Everything takes work. Now we'll straighten it out. You know, you gotta work hard to be comfortable. Yeah, a lot of people kid themselves, you know. <laughs> they, they, they know when they were born. They know where they're going. They know go, whether they're gonna go to heaven, whether they're gonna go to hell. They think they know that. They kid themselves, right? But the only people who are, you know, happy are the people who are comfortable. That's right. That's right. Now you take uh, the, the Carol, right? A dingbat, right? A dingaling. A dingo. That's what people think She's she is. Because that's the truth they want to believe. But uh, you put her in another situation, right? Put her in a situation that's tough. Stress. Where she's up against something, you see, she's no fool. Right? A little silly, but no yeah. fool. Right. Because what's your truth is my falsehood. What's my falsehood is your truth and vice versa. The movie was mostly shot on location in Los Angeles, and much of the script and story was made up as filming went along. The film did terribly at its openings in New York and Los Angeles. Even reviewers that had defended John in the past could not see many positives in the film. Cassavetti's friend John Cox wrote, Bookie shows much of what is exasperating about Cassavetti's. The film is unfocused, loony, indulgent. Everyone who had worked on it was surprised by how negative the responses were. Al Rubin said, People would leave the movie and yell at people in line not to go in. As a result of so many negative reviews, theaters ended up pulling the movie, and it ended up dying a quiet death. John set to work on Opening Night, a movie he had been working on for a couple of years. It starred Jenna as an aging actress who was dealing with alcoholism and mental health issues while preparing for a play. John funded the movie with money that was still coming in from women under the influence, as well as what he'd earned acting in 1976's Two Minute Warning. But the money ended up running out before they could successfully market the movie. Thankfully, John sold it to theaters in Europe, but decided not to open it in the United States at all because of how expensive it would be. Throughout the coming years, the movie opened at the Museum of Modern Art for Cassavetti's career retrospective, as well as the New York Film Festival. Jenna and John acted in more movies and television, as John's last two films had lost the money. Jenna worked on movies like The Brink's Job alongside Peter Falk, and Strangers, the story of a mother and daughter with Betty Davis. John went to Munich, Germany to make Brass Target. He was murdered in an apartment in Frankfurt. Why? We don't know. Mara, did Mike ever say anything about going to New York? No. Did he ever mention a town called Comstock? Great Meadow Prison. He never told me anything. He said he was going to live forever. Well, he almost made it, didn't he? I was going to throw him awake. The old bastard probably get up and conduct the thing himself. Stupid.
stupid son of a bitch. It was kind to me. He helped me when I needed it. He enjoyed being able to work with Sophia Loren, but their acting styles differed immensely. Director John Huff got them to come to an agreement where John could improvise up to a point and then had to say the final cue word so she could respond. Perspiration was pouring down John's face. He had difficulty memorizing lines. It was a physical problem with learning scripted lines that were written down. He had to work out how he could come back to that final word. John turned down the opportunity to direct Barbara Streisand in the 1976 version of A Star Is Born, claiming that he'd end up breaking her fucking nose. However, Streisand was offered the titular role in John's next film, Gloria, but she turned it down. Jenna ended up taking it, as it was a film she had wanted to do because she'd always wanted to make a movie about children. She played a woman who takes in a boy orphaned by the mob. Yes? You know, we're not interested in you. All we want is the book and the kid. Do you understand? Sure. Boy, why don't you take a walk? We'll take care of that kid. You got that book, kid? Come here. Frank. What you gonna do? Shoot a six-year-old Puerto Rican kid on the street? You don't know nothing. He don't even speak English. They filmed on location during an extremely hot summer in New York City. John was kept on a tighter leash as he was not able to change the script once they had started filming. Jenna worked with six-year-old John Adams to learn his lines as he didn't know how to read yet. She said, he reminds me of me, constantly in shock, reacting to this unfathomable environment. John met up with director Peter Bogdanovich, who was working in New York on They All Laughed, to talk about their work. Bogdanovich remembered that John was upset with the union-mandated crew that he had been assigned to work on Gloria. Mainly, he complained viciously about his lousy crew, called them all the names in the book, cursed them a number of times, and laughed his most diabolical Cassavetes laugh and said, Fuck em, I'll prevail over the bastards. The crew wanted to keep things organized and film in a timely manner, but John wanted to change everything at the last minute and keep Columbia from interfering. He immediately didn't trust anyone who worked with the studio because he didn't like to be controlled. The movie was completed and released in 1980, where it won the Golden Lion alongside Atlantic City. Jenna was nominated for Best Actress, but lost to Sissy Spacek in The Coal Miner's Daughter. Jenna said, There are lots of actresses in Hollywood who resent my working for John. I'd be happy to work for other directors if they made films with good parts for women. I like a hard part, a part in which I can work something out, find out things about myself. John took a role in The Incubus because he needed money. He played a doctor who starts investigating a series of murders and rapes that had to do with something otherworldly. John also wrote the screenplay. He went straight from that set to Whose Life Is It Anyway? and began suffering from exhaustion and sickness. It didn't help that his co-star, Richard Dreyfuss, was in the midst of a drug addiction and was struggling, so most of the attention was on him. John wanted to improvise a majority of his lines, which director John Badham remembered one scene was especially troublesome. John's character had to say, I have to go now. I have a hospital board meeting to teach a bunch of retards the reality of the budget. But John said no. I worked with disabled children on a film. I feel as though I would be insulting them with that remark. Badham decided he would let John come up with something else to say instead, thinking, I'm talking to a guy who has written a bunch of movies, who has a reputation as a great improviser. We kept throwing ideas out, and nothing worked for this guy. Finally, John looks up with this eureka look in his eyes and says, Tight-ass TikToks. 
We tried penny pincher, bean counters, but that's what he came up with. Every take, we get to that phrase and he gets stuck. Through 23 takes, he only has to remember four words. He made them up. It's his phrase. I thought, this is nuts. But as filming went on, John got more confident in his acting and started to get along with Badham, nailing his lines on just the first few takes. What's your name? Uh, Everett, sir. Well, Mr. Everett, how do you feel about this? Feels yes, feel. You feel sick when you look at this? No, sir. Why not? Uh, I'm used to seeing bodies, sir. Oh, I see. You've been here, what, three years? Cut up cadavers with the best of them. Death holds no fear for you, does it, Mr. Everett? Let me tell you something. This makes me sick. It ought to make you sick, too. Look there. That's the enemy. The enemy has won. Mr. Dreyer was 56 years old. And I want you, Mr. Everett, and I want all of you to feel sick when you see a body that hasn't reached its allotted three score years and ten. That's if you want to be doctors, not just money grubbers. His next project was Tempest, a movie based on Shakespeare's play about a man who is suffering through a midlife crisis and wants to find some meaning. Jenna signed on to play his wife, and 13-year-old Molly Ringwald made her film debut as their daughter. Ringwald remembered John is very friendly and professional. We established a natural bond. I was crazy about him, and I think that comes through on the screen. John put together a series of three plays starring John Voight, Jenna Rollins, and Peter Falk, which is where he got the inspiration to turn one of the show's Love Streams into a film. The problem was he couldn't get John Voight to reprise his role and ended up taking it himself. Seymour Castle, who had been arrested for selling cocaine and got ratted out, was released from prison and John cast him in the film. The two hadn't been friends for a few years, but they worked things out to make the movie. The cast and crew were surprised John's performance was so strong as he was drinking constantly and suffering from serious health conditions. Would love be considered an art? Well, some people think so. Well, you're a writer. You're always writing those, uh, those books about sex. Maybe you could write one about love. I could help you with that. Okay. We'll see how that works out. I'll love you. I love you. You know, I'm going to do this damn thing. I really am. I'm going to find balance. And I think you should do it too. You know, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to, I'm going to buy you a baby. Really? You really need some living thing that you could love, Robert, you know? Just, it could be just a little little animal that you could take care of and kiss and Please sleep don't. with. And you'd be balanced. I'd be balanced. Please. Actor Robert Field Steele said that he would drink and promise people things and get up the next day like the millionaire in Charlie Chaplin's City Lights, not remembering any of it. The movie opened in 1984 and won the Golden Bear at the Venice Film Festival. Bo Harwood later said, I learned a lot through John. I've done a lot of editing for him picture editing, sound editing, music editing, shot sound, composed score, and I've learned a lot about integrity. You know, 30 years from now, I can say I rode with Billy the Kid. Writer and director Andrew Bergman had just completed an indirect sequel to his 1979 film, The In-Laws, which would bring back Peter Falk and Alan Arkin as the leads. Its name, Big Trouble, seemed to be prophetic. 
Bergman decided to quit the movie after a couple weeks of shooting, and John was approached to helm the comedy, something completely out of his wheelhouse. He agreed to do it and ended up getting the largest budget of all his films. He still approached the movie the way he had with all of his other directorial works. Alan Arkin disliked John and thought he was manipulative. John's assistant, Helen Caldwell, said, Alan considered himself a talented actor who didn't need to be tricked or goaded into exuding what was required. The tensions ran deep, rather than surface bickering and fighting. Robert Field Steele said that making the movie sapped John's energy. The editing was a nightmare. It dragged on and on. They did reshoots, and there was a lot of blaming going on. Still, I wonder if he knew, as miserable as it was, that he was not too likely to get another movie. Big Trouble was received more warmly by reviewers who had disliked John's work in the past and thought the film was genuinely funny. But to those who preferred his other works, it was a disappointing end to his career. Bergman said, It wound up as a kind of a hybrid picture, partly my sensibility, partly his, ultimately nobody's. With me and Peter, it's like a car accident we don't talk about. John thought the film was a piece of shit and didn't want it to be his legacy. He was diagnosed with cirrhosis of the liver in 1983 as a result of his alcoholism and the hepatitis he contracted back in the late 60s. He quit drinking and smoking and tried to eat healthier, but his friends and family noticed that he wasn't the same person he used to be, less vibrant and energetic. Peter Bogdanovich said that John told him one of his biggest problems with booze was he couldn't get drunk, which is why he drank too much. John began working on his last play, A Woman of Mystery, starring Jenna Rollins, Carol Kane, and Charles Durning. It was about a homeless woman who moves in with a young woman who may or may not be her daughter. Kane said when she was unhappy with her character and was having trouble tapping into the role, John rewrote several elements of the script in a day. Kane said, there was no such thing for John as just okay. He'd go crazy and make sure it got much, much, much better, or much, much, much worse. He was not interested in mediocrity. Sometimes he'd just explode things and start over. The play was barely reviewed except for a couple of years later, by Jonathan Rosenbaum. He wrote, A Woman of Mystery is the greatest American stage production I've ever seen. Why there has apparently been no move on the part of the Cassavetes family to publish this play is beyond my comprehension so I can only voice my conviction that if and when this happens, the public sense of the size and meaning of Cassavetti's work will expand. Lelia Goldoni, who had starred in John's very first movie, Shadows, came to watch the play and was surprised at how vulnerable he was. I always thought he was hiding or lying, but when I saw him before the end of his life, that thing was gone and his soul was so close to the surface. I was right, there had been this mask that he'd put up, and now the mask was gone. There was just this extraordinarily pure entity. John was hoping to make his next film, She's Still Lovely, which he'd been writing for at least a decade. He approached Sean Penn to play the lead and Peter Bogdanovich to help fund the movie and take over if John's health made it impossible for him to continue. But John's plans fell through when Penn agreed to do Casualties of War because he didn't want to work with Bogdanovich. It wasn't until 1997 that John's son Nick directed Penn in the movie, which was retitled She's So Lovely. Throughout the late 80s, John stopped all outside contact because he was ashamed of his current condition. The only people he would talk to were his assistant, Helen Caldwell, and Falk's assistant, Carol Smith, who had worked on several movies with John. He mostly worked on writing and reminiscing on his time as an artist. He was bitter when Jenna left for a year to film Woody Allen's 1988 film, Another Woman. Sometimes he would allow friends over for a reading of what he had been working on, and they tried to convince him to go to a hospital, but John didn't trust doctors. 
In January 1989, the Sundance Film Festival held a screening of John's films, and the audiences loved rewatching them. Now, with an even better understanding of John's importance in cinema, as well as the messages of his films. Shortly before John's death, Al Rubin said John told him that if people wanted to know him, they should see his films because his work was his life. John Cassavetes passed away on February 3, 1989, at the age of 59. His funeral was held at Westwood Village Memorial Park in Los Angeles, and over 200 people came to pay their respects. Friends like Peter Falk, Seymour Castle, and Peter Bogdanovich spoke about what John meant to them and their fondest memories. His legacy lives on in his three children, who all went into Hollywood, as well as his wife, Jenna. An anonymous poem written by someone at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, where John had learned about acting and met Jenna, was posted on his picture in the building. It read, I drank a toast to John today. I heard that he had died. I raised my glass and shed a tear. There are reasons why I cried. For John, my friends, was one of us, a rogue, a vagabond. We shared a common bond. You did good work, John. You did good work. That's all I've got to say. Thank you so much for listening to the Gone But Not Forgotten podcast. This episode was researched, written, edited by me, Audrey Cornell. The music was written by Nia D'Amelio. Gone But Not Forgotten is a part of the Trident Network. To learn more about our videos, live shows, and podcasts, please visit thetridentnetwork.com. Make sure to join me and Louise next week where we'll be talking about John Cassavetti's acting work. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.